podcast about movies. Are you ready to talk about Blue Velvet with the great Kevin Allison? Because that's what you're going to get. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my delightful, by my wonderful, by the incomparable Sarah Marshall. Uh, But first, I just want to tell you, I'm so happy that we have Kevin Allison here. Kevin is a hero. In many different ways, you'll hear me gush uh, about him in the episode, but he is one of the founding members of the state, shaped my brain in that way, and then founded Risk, the storytelling uh, event slash podcast that shaped my brain in that way. You know, we've been talking about having him come on the show for a while, and uh, he said he wanted to do Blue Velvet. We thought it would fit perfectly into our October spooky season month of movies. I'm, again, extremely happy he's here. And speaking of Risk, I'll be telling a story on the Risk stage at an event they're hosting in Reno, Nevada. If you are in or around Reno, hopefully you'll check that out. It's in November. I could not be more excited. So Blue Velvet, if you are not aware, it's a 1986 American neo-noir mystery thriller film. Am I reading from Wikipedia? Can you tell? It's a neo-noir mystery film written and directed by David Lynch. It blends psychological horror with film noir. It stars Kyle MacLachlan, Isabella Rossellini, Dennis Hopper, and Laura Dern. We talk about him with a great thirst, or at least I talk about him with great thirst. Uh, We have Dean Stockwell as well, just in the most memorable Dean Stockwell role, probably. The film concerns a young college student who returning home to visit his ill father, discovers a severed human ear in a field. The ear then leads him to uncover a vast criminal conspiracy and into a romantic relationship with a troubled lounge singer. A romantic relation? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This description will be, uh, uh, we'll dive into this in the actual episode. I should let you know a number of content warnings uh, throughout this episode. The themes in Blue Velvet include domestic violence, uh, sexual violence, etc. If that is an area you're not interested in diving into today, we have many other episodes that I hope you will pivot to if you want to hear us talk but not hear us talk about these things. And again, I like to believe that we try our hardest to talk about these things as sensitively as possible when we do talk about them. So. You should know that we put out a playlist of songs to accompany each of our episodes. They're inspired by the conversation. They're inspired by the movie. You can find that in the show notes. I hope you will look for it there. I want to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon, everyone who supports us on Apple subscriptions, um, the podcast service there. If you are supporting us there and you're throwing us a little bit of money every month, we appreciate it. It's how we pay our bills. It's how the show gets made. You pay the vast majority of our bills by doing that. And we are all artists and musicians and writers and et cetera. So uh, we're otherwise unemployable is what I'm saying. (laughs) I appreciate that you help make this possible and you get bonus episodes in exchange It's going to be a bonus episode coming out any minute now, any minute now about October spooky things for the October spooky season. The way that we are going to get our horror fill and maybe just our spooky fill if you're not into the horror. It's a great and grand conversation between a couple of friends talking about all things horror, talking about why they, and in this case, they is we, why we are excited. Sarah told me yesterday, uh, at that point, 11 days into the month of October, she'd already watched 22 horror movies. So that's where she's at. (laughs) But anyway, thank you for supporting us on Patreon and Apple subscriptions. 
You Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory. Knack Factory is a commercial and creative content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Before we begin, we have a couple uh, different notes from a couple of different sponsors. So here we go. Out of curiosity, are you feeling a little anxious, a little overwhelmed? These feelings, as you know, can make it hard to shift gears. With Dipsy, you can focus just on what makes you feel good. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and characters. No matter who you're into or what turns you on, you can find stories about that intriguing coworker with a British accent or hooking up with your hot yoga instructor. You can hear the sexy voices of Sarunas J. Jackson, of ER Fightmaster, of Luke Cook, and many others in stories like you've never heard before. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy also has sleep stories. It's your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, or heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering a extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash Y-A-G. Dipsy is spelled D-I-P-S-E-A, so dipsystories.com slash Y-A-G. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash Y-A-G, D-I-P-S-E-A. P-S-E-A stories.com slash Y-A-G. Fired up! You Are Good is also made possible with support from Inked Gaming. Inked Gaming, of course, is a trusted one-stop shop for those who seek premium goods specifically crafted by gamers for gamers. Their growing collection of goods includes everything from premium playmats to mouse pads, all of which are designed to help you level up your gaming setup. Quality is the name of the game when it comes to creating premium goods, and that's why they make sure not to shape or ship anything they wouldn't use themselves. So, do you have a big game night battle coming up? You should uh, go over to inkedgaming.com. Inked Gaming has been a friend and sponsor of the show that's been in the business of providing premium quality gaming goods since 2011. They have a massive collection of playmats, mouse pads, and more. They can be made to feature both custom and pre-designed artwork. So if you feel like showing off your own personalized pattern, character, creature, or call sign during a game or stream, Team Inked will be happy to help. If you don't have your design already created, the artists behind their pre-designed goods are some of the most talented in the world, and they receive a commission for items sold with their work printed on them. That's not a common standard, evidently, I guess, and uh, Inked Gaming takes care of that for you and for their artists. Having Inked Gaming as a sponsor means that we have access to certain perks which we can offer exclusively to you, our listeners. There's a 10% off discount waiting for you at inkedgaming.com slash youaregood. All you have to do is pick or personalize the gear you need for your favorite game. Use the promo code youaregood at checkout and the discount will automatically apply to your order. All right, everybody, that is it for notes from before the show. Let's uh, head to Lumberton, the town where people really know how much wood a woodchuck chucks. All right, let's do this. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How's it going over there? Did you, like me, dive into this title this morning? (laughs) 
Not only that, but last night I fell asleep on my couch while watching Clouseau's Les Diaboliques. Ooh, good news. Which, as you know, Movie Hat gave me yesterday. Yeah. Was it horny like we thought it might be or no? Uh, It was a tiny bit horny. It was definitely gay. So that's even better. Fantastic. And and so I fell asleep like during the last reel and then woke up in the dark and thought, well, time to watch Blue Velvet, which is just always a great way to begin your day. We're blessed today by just like one of my favorite people who do things on the internet generally, someone who has helped shape my comedic collective conscience, someone who's a hero in this arena who brought this title to us. Special guest, who are you and why did you bring us Blue Velvet? (laughs) Hello. Thank you so much. (laughs) I am Kevin Allison. I am the host and creator of the podcast Risk, which is actually kind of about coming out about things that are hidden below the surface, because that's what my entire life has been about. And yes, I I was also a member of the sketch comedy troupe The State, which might be reuniting soon. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes. Somewhere Candace Opper is screaming and fainting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, lovely, lovely. Our repeat lovely guest who we share a state fanaticism about. Well, we, th- there's a lot of people who have been on your show that have been on Risk as well. Risk is all about people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. Mm. And yes, we've had a lot of wonderful peek behind the curtains into the most you know, outrageous moments in people's lives from people that have been on both of our shows. Also, it was, you know, I first learned about You're Wrong About from Dan Savage, recommending both oh. podcasts oh, at yeah. the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So how, so Blue Velvet, it, you said underneath the surface, there's, there's bugs, obviously. What's going on with you and Blue Velvet? Oh, my gosh. I saw this movie when I was 16 years old. We always love to say, oh, this movie changed my life. But... This one really did shake me up. And I was shocked to watch it again to prepare for this and realize, oh, my gosh, I think I've only watched this about three times now. But then (laughs) while I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, this movie is really painful. And there's a lot of like very, very (laughs) challenging stuff going on in it. So, yeah, maybe it is something to only visit, you know, three times during 50 years. Sarah, can you guide us through the plot of Blue Velvet? Good Lord. Okay, so I'll preface this by saying that like the plot of Blue Velvet and the feel of Blue Velvet are like two fairly distinct things. Mm -hmm. So we'll do plot first and then we'll try and tackle feel, which is like most of this. Because like you could do this movie, I would argue, in a normal way. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And that would be terrible. So, okay, Blue Velvet starts with us looking at actual Blue Velvet curtains, wonderful, to the sound of Blue Velvet by, I believe, Bobby Vinton, Mm -hmm. who many of us know for his kind of role in Goodfellas. And so we open by establishing the beautiful town of Lumberton, where everything is fine. And I think this movie was shot in North Carolina, but it's very clearly set in the greater Northwest because just look at it. 
And just look at David Lynch. I know that's a W in front of the radio station letters. I don't care. It's the Northwest. (laughs) So we start by looking at our main character, Jeffrey, who we haven't met yet, Zadad, appearing to have a big stroke or a heart attack while he's watering his lawn. And there's already so much symbolism that I won't Mm -hmm. even mention because it just will slow me down. So we'll get to it. But there's a dog. There's bugs. (laughs) Jeffrey's dad ends up in the hospital. Jeffrey, played by Kyle McLaughlin, comes home from college to help run the family hardware store and be the man of the house, essentially. He goes to the field where he likes to huck rocks at a shed. And what does he find but a human ear? Leading to what I remembered as the first great laugh line of the movie and what I still think is that, which is him bringing it to Detective Williams, who's like, well, let's take a look opens the sandwich bag he's brought it in, looks at it, and says, well, that's a human ear, all right. (laughs) (laughs) And you can see that human ear, all right, at Portland's Movie Madness Video Rental and Movie Museum. Thank you. (laughs) I was wearing the shirt this morning, and then I spilled some shit on it. I'm sad that I didn't bring it for the theme. Oh, well. And so Jeffrey finds the ear. He takes it to Detective Williams. He's very intrigued to know how this human ear ended up in a field in his town. And so he stops by the detective's house that evening. Can't get any more information out of him. Detective Williams says, when it's all sewed up, then I'll tell you, which is a very interesting choice of language, I think. And then while he's leaving, Jeffrey runs into the beautiful Sandy, played by Laura Dern, who steps into the light to this like beautiful orchestral flourish because this is a Technicolor noir movie, if ever there was one, and Mm. says, are you the one that found the ear? (laughs) (laughs) And then they have, I think, exactly the kind of first date that you would have with David Lynch himself. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Including the chicken walk. (laughs) That's what tore it for me. I was like, David Lynch would do that. And you would be like, all right, I'm one of the most beautiful women who's ever lived, but who could resist this (laughs) okay so jeffrey and sandy talk about the case which sandy has overheard a little bit about the next day jeffrey picks sandy up from school and takes her to local diner arlene's where they formulate a plan first they decide that jeffrey is going to do a henry portrait of a serial killer and break into dorothy's under the pretense that he's there to spray for bugs and then figure out a way to get in later. He's also doing a barbarian. It's like a classic serial killer move. Yeah, this has come up a lot in the past couple of weeks. Yeah. There's a lot of bugs, Frank. I haven't seen those too many. Well, there's a, there's a lot of entering a house under the pretense of being with some utility or some mm-hmm. house service and then leaving a window open so that you can get in for shenanigans. Yes, and by shenanigans, shenanigans we mean, you know, being a serial killer. Um <laughs> And in this case, like ear investigation stuff. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's the great thing about Jeffrey. I I also want to point out, it occurred to me while watching this, that at least three people, Brad Dorif, Dean Stockwell, and Kyle McLaughlin, who were in Dune, were then in this movie, which is incredible, because Dune was like, it took forever to make, it was very expensive, it flopped. Like, I think David Lynch took his name off of it. Nobody was happy with it. And yet when David Lynch was like, all right, boys, do you want to make another weird, weird movie? They were like, yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, to be, I mean, I don't, I don't, I love that observation. That was like, when you texted that to me, it was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. But like, what else was Brad Dorf doing? You know what I mean? Like he had like 85 horror movies he could have been doing. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, okay. So Kyle McLaughlin, he gets into Dorothy's apartment. He sees a man in a yellow sport coat as he gets the time to grab a key off the table so he can sneak in later which he he feels very normal about. He's like, listen, I just got to break into this lady's apartment to find out who's bothering her. I'm helping. So for his actual break-in, he's like, okay, Laura Dern, first we're going to have a really nice dinner. So they have dinner. I don't think they eat at the slow club. I feel like the slow club doesn't do really nice dinners. (laughs) They go to the slow club. This movie, like, without being overt about it, is, like, set in the 1960s, I think. It's like, yeah, it's the 80s, but it's really the 60s. Leave me alone. Like, every fucking 80s movie was, like, one foot in the 60s. I don't know why, but that's just what we're doing. Right. And now we're like, it is August 22nd, 1982, (laughs) as we begin our tale. It is very exactly in the 80s. They go to the slow club. They watch... Dorothy Valens, who's the woman who all this is about and whose apartment Jeffrey got into, played by Isabella Rossellini, who when David Lynch met her, he said, my God, you look exactly like Ingrid Bergman. And then they were married for a while. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, I didn't even know that part. Wow. Holy cow. Right? This is the second week straight of good and weird wife casting after we did Casper last week, and it was weird for a whole bunch of different reasons you can listen. October is wife guy month, apparently. (laughs) That's our real theme. Well, just as it's surprising that all those folks came to do this movie after what they'd been through with him before, it's surprising she married him after he put her through this. I know, right? She's like, I see your point of view. Let's spend some time together. (laughs) Uh, I also, isn't it true that David Lynch like doesn't really like swearing personally? Like he writes swears, obviously, but like he doesn't Mm -hmm. really do it himself. Oh, there's so many things he says. He he loves brightly lit places. He he's he doesn't do drugs or alcohol. You know all those things that are just like the opposite of everything going on in Blue Velvet. Right. Which yeah, which then makes total sense for this being his horror movie. Yeah. So Jeffrey breaks in. He uses his key, but you know he lets himself into Dorothy's apartment. Her apartment is very low lit and just like unpleasant to be in. And this movie also answers the question of like, what plant should you have in your incredibly low light depressing apartment? And the answer is snake plant. Because her snake plants are thriving. (laughs) Very low maintenance house plant. So Jeffrey hides in the closet. Dorothy comes home, gets a terrifying call from somebody who is able to put her son on. So we deduce that this is the guy who's holding her husband and son captive. And then Dorothy notices Jeffrey in the closet, grabs a knife, orders him to take his clothes off, which I think is kind of a genius move if that happens to you, because he's been watching her undress. And then she starts having sex with him, which does muddy the issue a bit. (laughs) There's a lot of muddying (laughs) of issues. He's torn from the closet and things are difficult from here Mm -hmm. forward. (laughs) Yeah. She starts having sex with him at knife point and like he... I think is quite into it, but like this whole movie to some extent is about like how much and why does a person enjoy 
really dangerous sex with a scary person. It's so funny that this is the movie that we did because someone was just telling me about like a hypothetical conversation they had with someone who was like, I wouldn't be into knife play because it like enforces violence. It like reinforces. And and it was a weird, it was like a weird, like very repressed sort of like sex is scary take. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is so fucking bonkers that that whatever. And then I watched this and I was like. When is this going to come up? I was like, I'm texting him this movie right now. He needs to, he clearly hasn't seen Blue Velvet. Oh, you don't want knife play? Wait till you see this. (laughs) (laughs) It'll make you want to run out and buy every knife in the store. I've got a great Dean Stockwell feature for you. I wouldn't want to do knife play because I'm a klutz. Um, oh, my God. I took a knife play <laughs> workshop once. I was at a kink camp and sometimes you just run out of stuff to do. Oh, yeah. Like at a work conference. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I'll learn about plastics. Do they have the like bingo thing where they're like they do it like this and then pull out a thing and it's knife play? Is that how you get to no, that? No, you get to choose on the schedule. And <laughs> okay. after a while, you're just like, well, I'll take that workshop of that thing. I know I will never voluntarily do (laughs) his knowledge is nice yeah this is how i ended up going to a talk at a publishing conference by someone who had written a biography of uh ray bolger which turned out to be amazing (laughs) okay so dorothy starts having sex with the medium-sized fella then frank comes over. Frank is played by Dennis Hopper and Alex, we were texting that as far as we know, this is just what he was like. Yeah, I just read the the like biography of him in the 60s and uh, he left the 60s just as this guy. Extraordinarily difficult and difficult to women and d- difficult mm-hmm. all over to your, his best friends, like hard dude to be around. Yeah, he had just sobered up to he had mm. just gotten sober before doing this movie and Lynch was a little bit taken aback that he said, no, you don't understand. I am Frank. (laughs) Totally. It's freaking, it's crazy. I would be too. I'd be like, okay, Dennis, that's great. But our insurers can only go so high for this. Yep. The biography I was referring to about Dennis Hopper is about him and his marriage to Brooke Hayward, which is like the Mm. exact decade of the 60s. Mm. Uh, And it's called Everybody Thought We Were Crazy. It's by Mark Razzo. And it's wonderful and it's about Los Angeles modern art and those two and everyone around them so like it's extremely well worth the read but the last third of it is an extended trigger warning oh right yeah 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 yeah. I think Dennis Hopper also injured an actress when they were filming The Human Highway a movie no one has seen when he was just like playing with knives and like one of them yeah, like got a bad cut because he was like juggling knives or something near her. I assume he wasn't sober. Didn't go to Kevin's workshop. That's right. No. <laughs> I didn't know until I listened to this thing I'm going to quote for the rest of my life, evidently, but I didn't know until listening to the latest series of You Must Remember This that Mickey Rourke put a gun in his oh, partner's gosh. handbag and she didn't know it and it fell out, discharged and shot her in the arm. Mm. I'm also, as horrible as that story is, I really didn't think you were going to say handbag, so I'm glad you said handbag. Oh, yes, thank yes, 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 you, know. yes, yes. That ended, yes, yes, yes. I'm glad that that's where it went. And the person who I was referring to, again, because I don't like just saying like this person and we don't re- say who that is, it was uh, mm-hmm. the model Carrie Otis. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole series was extraordinary, especially for all that it revealed about 
the weird misogyny, the backlash, the the backlash against mm. the women's movement that showed up in the 80s. Oh, my God. That was yeah, it's yeah. tremendous. Tremendous. OK. Frank wants to be called mommy. He doesn't want to be called baby. He wants to do his laughing gas. And this to me is like the iconic moment that I always think of in this movie where we get this very menacing, I assume Angelo Badalamenti score and Frank just like <sighs> inhaling his giggle gas and going like, mommy, <laughs> mommy. <laughs> and I guess that feels so true to like heteropatriarchy in a way that just is goes beyond words and can only be reenacted. And we watch this whole, as Jeffrey's watching, watch this whole scene where he slaps Dorothy, he pins her on the ground, he like stuffs her blue velvet robe in his mouth. He appears to fist her. Oh. That was my interpretation of that, because he's He's got his hand, you know. Oh, you, uh, yeah, in her area. yeah, interesting. I think he does that for a while, and then he humps her Oof. with all his clothes on. Oof, yeah, with his leather. With his leather, <laughs> I know. Come on, he rashes the rashes. But like not fun leather. It's just like your dad's bomber jacket. Leather. <laughs> it's like a leather blazer. It's so weird. We were texting Sarah about this, about how like obviously when we watch these movies so close to each other you see similarities or whatever but like his arc is harriet the spy's arc for a while like jeffrey's arc is harriet the spy's arc and you're like he needs a golly and i was like well it's not you know it's not frank and then i realized it is frank like like the people he's receiving guidance from are these two people yeah <laughs> Which is frank wild. and sandy frank and sandy yeah totally that's how he's coming of age <laughs> So, yeah, and we were also texting. I was like, how much sex do we think Jeffrey has had at this point? And you were like, zero, zero sex. <laughs> yeah, Kevin, what's your, like, how virginal do you think Jeffrey comes into the scene? Well, you know what's fascinating is there's a deleted scene. Oh. Yeah, of Jeffrey at college spying on a rapey sort of thing happening, a uh, mm -hmm. non-consent. I haven't seen the deleted scene, but I've heard about it where he's spying on a guy and a gal, and the guy is abusive in some way toward the gal, and he's just letting it happen. And then mm. other people come around, and at that point, he yells out, hey, stop that, or what, you know, like, oh, as oh, if, oh, oh my yeah. gosh, people are going to notice I'm just sitting here watching this. So that was wow. very, I, so, yeah, he may not have had any sex at this point, but there's stuff going on inside Jeffrey, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> He has a specific appetite he's sorting through. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey is seething with stuff at this point. Yeah. So Jeffrey watches mommy and daddy doing this. <laughs> it's the only way to put it, I guess. And then what happens? This Frank just, yeah, Frank goes. And then he comes out and kind of comforts Dorothy a bit. But she wants to be hit. She wants to have sex with him. And she wants to be hit during sex. Mm. And clearly there's no consent possible when... Someone is holding your husband and son captive and cutting off little bits of your husband. Mm -hmm. But she is like kind of losing herself in the moment and smiling sometimes when Frank is doing his thing. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole thing here with like Jeffrey becoming acquainted with like sex and this particular kind of sex mm -hmm. in this moment. It's very confusing. <laughs> and so he leaves after I think just feeling conflicted about how to treat Dorothy, who's asking for the scary thing. 
And I mean, to sum up, basically, like he continues investigating and going deeper and figuring out more. He tails Frank. He figures out where he lives. He figures out that the guy in the yellow blazer is a detective with the police. Oh, my God. He (laughs) ends up being taken along on a night out with Frank and Frank's friends, including Brad Dorif and Jack Nance, to Dean Stockwell's place, which is like... Does he do anything aside from stash your kidnapping victims for you? Is this like a cat house or anything? I think like he's in charge. Oh, he's the kingpin. Yeah. Yeah. And he's definitely like the source of drugs, I think, for for these folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. And and that scene is so reminiscent of the scene in Boogie Nights. I think that. that, that, Oh, yeah. yeah, Yeah. Right. Alfred Molina. Also, the scene in Super Bad. <laughs> a cl- oh yeah, totally, totally, yeah. Or as as we there was a there was an essay in Variety about this being like sort of like the best Dean Stockwell role sort of ever, and they referred to whatever that stash house is as a Diane Arbus living room, which I thought <laughs> yes, was yes, yes. such a great yes. description. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> That is who those people sitting around are. It's like it's Diane Arbus and also the far side. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we all go to Dean Stockwell's and in kind of the other scene I remember most in this movie and then I think a lot of other people remember most as well. Dean Stockwell, who's wearing like clown makeup, like a thin layer of clown makeup. Does this beautiful lip sync performance to, I think it's called In Dreams by mm-hmm. Roy Orbison. Which no one calls it that, of which course. is amazing. Which is called <laughs> the candy colored clown they call the Sandman. Right. Which right. like cements Frank in being eight years old. Oh, right. Yeah. Like he's like, he's making a request of a song, not by the name of the song, but by the thing he remembers. Right, 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 right. It's like, it's so good. Also, <laughs> the Sandman as like an archetype shows up everywhere, but where is the Sandman? Man ever a candy colored clown and what does that even mean <laughs> this is a great and important question uh, i love david link we also have to talk about how this movie like did well by the way this movie was a success yeah it's incredible <laughs> yeah it was his yeah. big big breakthrough really yeah yeah yeah, and I think I think the Elephant Man did well, but that was like him doing a normal movie. That right. was him being like, I am making a normal movie for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. It'll be text. It'll be mostly text. Yeah. It'll have a nice role for Mel Brooks's wife. <laughs> 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 yeah. And then this is like the commercial breakthrough of the weirdness of David Lynch, which like continued to be profitable for people. For years and across many projects, which is a testament to how much David Lynch looked at America and was like, I get you. I know what you are. So, yeah. So we have our time at Dean Stockwell's. Jeffrey keeps getting deeper. He's really troubled by what he's seeing and experiencing. He keeps having interesting, sexy encounters or sexual encounters with Dorothy. And... Sandy gives him a beautiful monologue while they're parked outside a church, I assume, because there's organ music the whole time about the dream she had the night she met him, that there was darkness everywhere because there were no robins and the robins represent love. And then one day thousands of robins appeared. So there's trouble in the world until there's love, which 
I do believe, but also it's like, get a grip, Sandy. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't it also feel like it functions the same way High's monologue ends uh, Raising Arizona? Hmm. He has like that vision about them all coming together and then like like being a family, whatever. And it's like, I don't know. I felt like there was something going on narrative structurally for like weirdo big picture movies at this time. But who knows? (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to take it, except that like Sandy is is like the good world of like light and sunshine. She appears to have a giant poster of her dad hanging in her room. (laughs) You know, I don't know who else that could even be. (laughs) Daddy's home. Daddy's home. Daddy's not going anywhere. Um, Like, maybe it's Alan Ladd or something. But if that is her dad, like, imagine trying to do anything in Sandy's room. (laughs) (laughs) But Jeffrey keeps getting deeper. This kind of culminates in a night when he and Sandy are driving home. Oh, they've gone to a party. They've danced to what sounds like a Julie Cruz song. If it's not literally Julie Cruz, it is spiritually. And they both kind of realize that they love each other. They both say, I love you. And kind of their beautiful, like, teen romance is sealed. And then they're driving home and someone starts chasing them and trying to drive them off the road. Oh, no, it's Frank. No, it's not Frank. It's Sandy's boyfriend, Mike. Oh, no. But then this is interrupted by Dorothy showing up at Sandy's house where she shows up um, with visible injuries and also naked and traumatized and talking about how Jeffrey put his disease in her, which is her cute euphemism for having sex with Jeffrey. Because at at one point she says the sexiest line, which is, I still have you inside me. It it was something like it makes me powerful or something like that. Yeah. It's like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you got to clean up. Dorothy, (laughs) he's going to be all down your leg. But anyway, um, and then where will your power be? (laughs) So we get to watch, I think for the first time in American film, Laura Dern contort her mouth downwards and into the tragedy mask. Oh, I love it. That we now all know so well and love so much. (laughs) And so Sandy forgives Jeffrey for whatever she thinks that was about. She has to have only about half the story. And then Jeffrey has a final showdown at Dorothy's apartment and shoots Frank in the head after finding the yellow-coated detective dead but standing there. I want to talk about that. that. I I love it. I don't get it. I feel like maybe he's technically alive, but he's still standing. He has a big showdown. He kills daddy. He sets mommy free. And then he and Sandy are together and Dorothy and her son are together. Happy ending. (laughs) Kevin, one thing that's come up a handful of times over the past couple of weeks, and I feel like you're the perfect person to ask because you saw this when you were 16 and you helped shape 90s pop culture with comedy. We've been talking a lot about how weird kids TV was probably clearly influenced by Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks, probably Twin Peaks more than anything else. And for me, that was like the adventures of Pete and Pete. And I went from like the adventures of Pete and Pete to the state. Ah. So I'm curious about like, how did this movie and knowing this shit was possible impact like what you were making at that, thinking about making at that time? Oh gosh. You know, it's like, I've heard so much about how people like the Coen brothers and Tarantino and P.T. Anderson were all you 
hugely influenced by this movie. To me, I, I don't think I ever saw it as so much of like an artistic inspiration. For me, it was very much about what I was going through in childhood because mm -hmm. I knew I was gay when I was well, I first had like conscious inclinations about being attracted to other boys when I was still a toddler and was mm. by the time I was five years old, I literally knew what the words gay and fag meant and knew that mm. that meant me. And so I was terrified about going to kindergarten mm. because I thought, oh, my God. If I go to kindergarten, I'm going to be surrounded by so many kids from places I don't know, and someone's going to see what I'm trying to hide underneath. Yeah. And Cincinnati was, at that time in the 70s and 80s, famous for being super Republican, super sex negative, the Maplethorpe trial, the uh, Larry yeah. Flint oh, trial. Yeah. Like whenever something yeah. like uh, Hair or Equus would come to town, like it would get raided. And so it was just a very, <laughs> it was a very keeping up appearances kind of town. And I was raised super, super Catholic. Mm -hmm. So I really, really learned how to be a good boy. Yeah. and how to keep these things hidden away inside me. I, I felt like there was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing brewing in me as a kid. And so I think, well, what, what happened was I became obsessed with movies around about the time I was 12 and started going down to this place called the Moviola in downtown mm. Cincinnati. Like nice. in 1980-whatever, a kid could be 12 taking the bus downtown to an art house without, <laughs> without that being too big of a deal. And the art house just being like, oh, you're nowhere near 18 years old. Come on into this R-rated movie. <laughs> So by the time I was 16, I had started to try to come out to some of my friends. Mm. And I was determined to see this movie called Eraserhead at the Moviola, but they would only play it at midnight. And mm. a friend of mine was like, look, Kevin, we're going to get stoned on marijuana for the very first time and finally oh, see Eraserhead fuck. because I just oh my got God. a $500 car. <laughs> <laughs> So that night came. It was a Friday in 1986. We drove down to the Moviola and we're parked in this parking lot. We smoke his bong. I thought that we smoked way, way, way too much. But in fact, maybe we were just getting stoned for the first time. <laughs> and we were too terrified to exit the car. So we just sat there for like two hours waiting to get sober again in a car in a parking lot downtown. So I never saw, I mean, at that point in 1986, I did not see Eraserhead. And then the movieola announced there's a new David Lynch movie and you have to see it to believe it. I was like, they're playing it at a regular time. I'm just going to go by myself and see this thing. And it was just like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I think there were several things going on. One, it was just tapping into so much of the subconscious, you know, like there, mm. there's so much, you know, daydream and dreamy and, uh, you know, all that what's hidden underneath stuff going on in it. And two, there was kinds of sexuality happening on the screen mm. that I'd never seen before. Just, you know, I didn't think of myself as kinky at that age, but 
I did think of myself as being deviant, you know? So mm-hmm. the movie really just struck a chord in me of, oh my gosh, this is so important because it's revealing, you know, that light must live with darkness and that if we mm-hmm. don't look under the hood, you know, we'll never know how how it all works. If you don't look under the hood, you'll be like all of the adults in this movie that are not having weird psychosexual sex. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but but even if you do, even if you, I, I have a feeling that Jeffrey is going to be up to some not so great stuff if there was a sequel. You know, I, I don't yeah. I don't think all is really well at the end of this movie. <laughs> no. Right. And I, I love how the ending of this is so over the top syrupy and that we end on the same beats that we started with establishing the idyllic town above the bugs where it's like, yeah, I feel like you're just being handed the knowledge that like, oh, yeah, there's still a shit ton of bucks. <laughs> mm, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Sarah. I, I am curious when you were asking about how many times we thought that he'd had sex and you said that this movie was formative. And as a person who I feel like is constantly making episodes <laughs> about pulling back the green grass and finding a heap of bugs. You know, it's like, it makes sense that like so many of these great movies are ultimately mysteries because in the words of the great Madonna, life is a mystery. And all, all that we're trying to do is figure out like what the fuck is actually mm-hmm. going on. So Sarah, like, is that something you identify with in this character and did when you initially saw it? Being an older virgin. <laughs> <laughs> that and... Uh-huh. And <laughs> that end being like, huh, there's an ear in this grass. Oh, I wonder completely. what that's all about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And also when I saw this, I think I was also about 16. And I had the idea in my head that it would be like a normal erotic thriller, which I think my baseline for was basic instinct. I know. Right, totally. right, and then right. I was like, oh, no, that was completely that was something else. And then I think it was when I was in college that I came back to it and really felt like I got it or at least felt like I was getting a lot out of it. And I think like what fascinated me then most, and then similar to you, Kevin, I was watching it for this episode and I was like, I don't think I've watched this in like 10 mm. years. Like, I don't think, it, cause it just part of it is that the images are so strong that it feels really like, even if you couldn't recount the plot in great detail, it's like emblazoned onto your brain, sort of the key moments of what happened. And I think what I found most sort of true to American culture in a way that was expressed just in a way that I hadn't seen before and continues to feel very real is like the, the like dangerous male sexuality and specifically Frank's relationship to the vagina mm. <laughs> where like he's like spread your legs show it to me like he's like commanding her to show it and then he's like you know he wants it but like his whole thing is that he's like she's mommy and he's baby like he starts off as daddy and then he turns into baby when the vagina comes out and i feel like his whole sexuality is like frantically trying to get back into the uterus and i think that's true of a lot of men yeah totally that's daddy being home yeah yeah you know it's interesting this time like the first couple times i saw it because that was i also saw it again like in college was the second time i think i saw it but this time around it occurred to me to feel actually some pity some compassion for Mm -hmm. frank because he's clearly self-destructing throughout this entire he's clearly (laughs) not going to make it to the end of this movie he has zero self-control and the reason he's so dangerous is because literally anything can trigger 
either his becoming a baby or his becoming like completely murderous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting seeing the things that appeal to each of you or appealed to each of you when mm-hmm. you initially saw the movie and like what you saw in the subtext. Because like the thing that especially like as we're again like hurtling towards like more regressive ideas towards sex sexualities mm. or like sexual freedom, liberation, mm-hmm. et cetera, culturally and politically, the thing that strikes me the most in this viewing, and it, it's like funny, I hadn't even considered, Sarah, that you you said you thought that this was like just like a regular erotic thriller that like <laughs> I just listened to that series about erotic thrillers and I hadn't even considered this movie's place in that. Right, right. <laughs> to me, like the biggest enemy and scariest thing in here is the reason like why all of this sex is well there are many reasons but like a reason why a lot of this sex is so like terrifying and gross and like hostile and like bruising is because it's forced underground right like so much of their sexual expression Mm -hmm. and like satiation of sexual appetite is forced underground and like the shit that like happens like as a result, there's not like a lot of safety for anyone. There's not a lot of communication. There's not a lot of ability to like express what your actual needs are. Mm-hmm. It's just like, let's crash into each other and fucking, you know, <laughs> like get it on each other. And then that's it. <laughs> and, you know, like, I think that, you know, I was saying before, I used to feel a little bit like Jekyll and Hyde when I was in high school, like the crazy wild man would come out when I would drink mm. and all of a sudden I was taking off sure. all my clothes at parties and stuff like that. That Jungian idea that you have to integrate the shadow, that you have to bring the darkness yes. into the light and learn how to deal with it. I think that's what this movie is really about. And what touches me about David Lynch is that like Young, I think he was like, he honors and kind of cherishes and respects his own subconscious. And I feel like mm. he, with transcendental meditation and stuff like that, really tries to tap into it. So I think one of the reasons that a lot of the plot elements of the movie are like, wait, that doesn't quite add up, does it? Or wait, what? Why? You know, Mm -hmm. I I think a lot of that doesn't even matter all that much because it's more about like daydreamy elements Mm -hmm. in David Lynch. And so I feel like he himself is a pretty well integrated person, but he's kind of showing us that this is kind of the split for uh that's out there you know right like even you were talking about other erotic thrillers there's a lot of hitchcock in this and there's a lot Mm -hmm. of hitchcock in de palma and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but there's just a more direct tapping into the director being like all right i'm gonna really explore some of my own perversities yeah my own ways that I think it would be interesting to kill a woman. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. It's really interesting. Like he has in interviews admitted that, oh, I always had this thing about wanting to be hiding in a woman's closet and discovering a mystery. Like, it's kind of interesting that it, that's how he ends that sentence, you know, discovering a mystery, like a hardy boy. Well, and I think like so much like it's not surprising that it's this you know, strange, airy, sometimes abrupt, sometimes extremely violent dream mystery. Because like, I feel like so much of 
like sexual coming of age, which like I think people think is a thing that happens in puberty and not like a thing that can happen your entire life, which is like you're trying to figure out your relationship to your sexuality. Thank you, Alex. I'm writing that down and putting it on my refrigerator. Well, for real, I mean, like Kevin's going to fucking like kink conferences, oh like and stuff. Like it's yeah, like I hadn't, I just hadn't thought of that. I keep being like, well, I missed my chance. I'm too old now. My sexuality oh, no. is finished. Oh my Thank goodness. You. There's a story on Risk called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, and I'm 41 years old. And, I, you know, 41 years old, I kn- knew I was a very, very sexual person, knew I was gay, but went to this camp and I was like, oh, wait, I'm this too, mm-hmm. and was so disturbed by a lot of the stuff that, mm-hmm. by the Pandora's box that that opened up in me, mm-hmm. that I went to a rich ridiculously expensive sex therapist for a while and it was interesting because so many people try to do a freudian read of this like roger ebert Mm -hmm. was really he was like wait a minute we have to know how did these fetishes come about how Hmm. are the how do these complexes work with these characters Hmm. and i remember telling this sex therapist when i was you know in my mid-40s I I feel like I have to go back and figure out how, where all this stuff originally came from. And he said, yeah, you could do that, but a fetish is a fetish. It's now. So I like you learning isn't going to make it go away like a demon. Right. right. And also it's based on the idea that it is a demon and should go away. Right. Totally. Exactly. Exactly. And David Lynch himself said, you know, something along the lines of, it's really valuable to look deeper into the shadows of things, but then you have to learn to live with it. Right. That's kind of the sense that I get. It's like going back to the like the the sexual awakening isn't like a year or two in puberty. It's like it can and should not should, but if you are open to it, it can be a relationship that lasts your entire life. And that's fantastic. And like this in a lot of ways is like, here's what that looks like for anyone who's not having missionary sex only to conceive children a handful of times in their life. Like here's what happens to you. If you live in a culture where that is regarded entirely as like the only way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, right. And like, right. it makes things that don't necessarily have to be CD CD. It creates hiding places for people who have just, shit and violence going on like it creates a difficult underworld where you might also have to go to figure out who and what you are yes yeah you know when i saw the scene of frank's entrance in this movie for the first time this time around about like five years ago i started having a bdsm relationship with someone where we did kind of fall into this ritual, you know, this step-by-step ritual, which was kind of religious feeling and and then very like archetypal feeling. And we would always process it afterwards. We, afterwards, yeah. we would say, oh, well, that was interesting because that reminded me of something from my childhood, yada, mm. yada. But pretty briefly, pretty briefly, right? And then back to, you know, just talking about what's going on in New York or whatever. <laughs> Getting bagels. Yeah. (laughs) There came a time, there came a time where I realized, oh my gosh, wait, you know, I really have dredged up a bunch of stuff that really, really is quite powerful and kind of disturbing to me. And so we had this long conversation trying to process it even more. And I said to him, I think I need time off from seeing each other while I continue to think this stuff through. And the fact that he was so amenable to that and, you know, that we were able to do all that talking about it 
was so essential and now we're we're back we're back to doing our crazy ritual mm. and so watching this scene this time around that frank entering the room i was like oh yeah that's the problem there's a right. split he's objectifying mm. like he can't even have her looking at mm. him because he cannot deal with her as a whole person mm. and to a certain extent neither can jeffrey so wait are you saying you brought up your needs in this situation yeah to, to your partner in this in this case and they didn't say oh that's fine everything's fine and then just ice you out <laughs> it wasn't quote normal sex where you get like emotionally abused for expressing your needs indefinitely forever and then ghost one another and then write something on the cut about it <laughs> yeah that's very weird that is weird that sounds deviant really uh, yeah. You guys had a conversation about it. You were able to revisit it and it wasn't held against you for the rest of your life. That's interesting. Yeah. And and too many people just assuming that's the way it is. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. Like, like, yeah. I mean, I, I always feel like, oh, wait, don't people know most things can kind of be worked through mm. if we talk with one another and are <laughs> compassionate and present? Oh, yeah. No, I and many people don't know and I think this speaks like to me, it's so interesting that we're talking about sort of like your lifelong relationship with sexual coming of age. Cause I think anything that's been a realization for me or any growth has always been about like super boring mm -hmm. shit at the end of the day. Mm. But like, I realized that like a lot of my sort of like negative tendencies and defaults, which are like fleeing or freezing or whatever sort of all that shit is because like I never explored an idea or a feeling in my household. So I didn't know that that was on the table oh. without like getting like all of that shit you know, I started to grow out of and form relationships with alternative models of like how to get along with partners yeah. in my 30s. Like mm -hmm. I didn't know like a lot of those kind of default activities, which led to like, you know, icing people being iced, you know, having sort of like weird tensions, like finding myself in abusive situations like that all came from not ever having processed this stuff, which is, uh, I'd like to see a sequel in which these people learn how to talk to each other. Oh my God. Wouldn't that be a trip? Oh my God. It would be good. Can we talk very quickly about, I'm, I'm so afraid we would go by without this coming up. Just like Dean Stockwell for a minute. Like he, uh -huh. he's like a quasi queer coded character. That's in a relationship with like a 55 year old lady. Like it's amazing. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I think he was also doing quantum leap when they made this movie, like the quantum leap people had to be like do whatever you want blue velvet sounds good <laughs> oh my gosh you're right that's amazing yeah yeah and you know what's funny is frank keeps saying that you're so he's so suave ben is so suave and that is like one of the key differences is that ben even though he seems high out of his mind all the time at least seems to have it somewhat together yeah. <laughs> whereas mm -hmm. frank you know frank is not gonna be like you know hannibal lecter or someone wandering off in tahiti <laughs> with a cocktail at the end <laughs> well i forget what frank like pitches as their toast oh to your health to your health yeah yeah he responds yeah and he responds like as you please frank <laughs> Right. The character is like, oh my God, I'd love to know like how much of that was informed by Lynch and how much he was like, you know what, Dean, you've been here before. You should do this.
this. <laughs> you were in Dune. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> Welcome back. I did hear, I did hear, by the way, Kyle McLaughlin saying, you know, Lynch is famous for people absolutely adoring working with him. Like mm-hmm. everyone has such a positive feeling about him. And uh, Kyle McLaughlin said, after making Dune, which was such a terrible experience for everyone, and I thought my career was over, I was so touched that David asked me to do this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like this made his career, right? Like after this, Kyle MacLachlan was like talked about. He was part of something big. Oh, yeah. And, And also, this movie is like sets the stage for Twin Peaks. Right. You know, Twin Peaks deals with a lot of very similar stuff, you know. Yeah. And there's so like something about the sex in this movie or specifically the like Frank's sexuality, um, which kind of is this movie for me. I feel like the thing it showed me that I think I kind of suspected but couldn't put into words was this dynamic where Frank or like men generally, as represented by Frank, like feel like women have all the power because women are mommy and therefore you can Mm. brutalize them as much as you feel the need to because they still have more power than you even if it's only imagined power that you're projecting onto them yes Mm. (laughs) oh my god sir have you written have you written about serial killers before like this never in my life This sounds familiar. Also, like men, uh, a lot of men, gen, gen, not even the serial killer kind. No. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be a serial killer. The serial killer kinds, you know, they just have to kill you over and over. Yeah. But, you know, if you want to operate on a smaller scale, you just obtain a single woman and you brutalize her repeatedly. Oh, my God. And then you remind her that at least you are not a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this reminds me that it was about this same time it was around about when i was i don't know 16 or 17 there was a woman in our parish you know i went very 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 catholic when i was a kid Mm -hmm. and it was a prominent family in the church and friends with my parents and this woman decided to get divorced from her husband and i remember how my mom couldn't deal with that idea. Like, mm. uh, you know, like it was not okay for a marriage to end under any circumstances. Then I remember a day, a couple days later after this big scary revelation that she was driving me somewhere or I was helping her run errands and mom revealed to me that Mrs. H, I'll call her, had been being beaten up by her husband. And so mom was now feeling like, okay. Hmm. And it was so shocking to me, first of all, that Mr. H was beating up Mrs. H. But it was also shocking to me that I was like, oh, so that's the only reason mom thinks Mm. a woman should be able to ask for a divorce? Right, right. right. It's a big, big reveal. Yeah, Yeah. it's the goodbye Earl clause. Yeah. I guess I told that story because it's another way that I kind of relate to that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Keeping up appearances is so important in the American dream. (laughs) Right. And just shreds you alive. Mm. So we know Detective Williams is a father. We know that Frank likes to be called daddy. Who, in your view, is the daddy of Blue Velvet? Kevin, you're welcome to kick us off. 
Uh, I mean, you know, the first thing that occurs to me is David Lynch, you know, because it's yeah. it's so seeped <laughs> in, in the person who's making it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. This has got Lynch seed all over it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, too. And I would say that based on the conversation we've been having, this movie, I think, serves as a beautiful example of like being someone who people love to work with so they'll come work with you on a subsequent movie even after your most recent movie was a disaster for them <laughs> and then I, it's like you're speaking to what we've been referencing this whole time it's lovely to watch david lynch and the david lynch players <laughs> like figure out what it is that they're doing and what america is ready for yeah and kind of make blue velvet with this cast together and use that in the thought process of like, I think we can do a TV show based on these mm -hmm. things. And another role for Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, I guess like I need people to know that David Lynch has a YouTube channel and every single day he does the number of the day and the weather in Los Angeles. And it's just the best, you guys. <laughs> My daddy is obviously Dean Stockwell. I mean, <laughs> I think just like the bucket of choices that are involved there are so great. The fact that like, I do believe, he, you know, to Kevin's point, either he's like the primary drug supplier or like the boss or both. Mm -hmm. And that he is like cool while Frank likes to believe he's fully in charge and is hot and a disaster. Mm. The way he's made up, the way his body moves when he sings, it feels like ghostly in a very fascinating way. Mm. Everything about that scene, and I know it's like one of the most notorious scenes about the movie, but I think about that scene and the visuals around that scene a lot. Also, like he's very sexy in this. And generally, but like he, he makes this a sexy performance. Mm -hmm. He like fits into that weird role of the we like the people I was the like men in particular I was attracted to as a as a little kid, mm -hmm. which were like Joel Gray characters. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, yes. He has a Joel yeah. Grayishness about him. Totally, <laughs> totally. Like, like that's a, yeah. I guess you're, that's exactly. It's it's like a vaguely terrifying and bitchy at the same time. <laughs> my favorite you, you were also like one of the older millennial things i think is to have been raised on peewee's playhouse although maybe oh, you yeah. weren't because wasn't that on hbo oh no i was oh, you were. okay no because they, they had the they had the like the peewee's like variety thing and then they turned it into like the kids show mm -hmm. that notoriously rob zombie was a set decorator on which makes perfect sense yeah totally huge huge impact probably his best work <laughs> probably his best. i hate rob zombie everybody his most cohesive statement <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, this has been a delight. I feel like we could talk about this for another 10 hours with you, but maybe a nice consolation will be if you would come back and talk about another movie. Oh, I'd yeah. love to. I would Yay. love to. This is so much fun. It was so fun for us, too. Totally. Thank you so much for being here. It was an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Kevin Allison for being here. Can't believe it. Remember to check out the show Risk if you have not already. It is fantastic. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our transitions sound so 
lovely, sweet, sweet, of course. That's the rhyme. Thank you for listening. Thank you for following us on social media at Instagram. Thank you for following us on social media on Twitter. You are good pod. Thanks for uh, supporting us on Patreon. Thank you for supporting us on Apple subscriptions. If that's what you're doing, we really appreciate that. Again, we have a bonus episode coming out soon. And uh, I think that's it for now, everybody. Thanks for being here. You are good. We appreciate you.